Did you see my notes that were here? Um, did you notice that Paul's shirt is so generous he could have gotten away with not wearing pants? That's a nice urban shirt you have there, bro. Yeah, I had it. I, I, can you do another copy of that for me? Okay, so we're reading the Bible this morning. <laughs> this, the, particular text, the particular text that stuck out to me, because when we sort of orient ourselves as a community around the lectionary, which is a, a process of reading through text that, that many, many, many hundreds of thousands of churches do around the world, to try to cover the story over a three-year period to dance in and out of Scripture. And so these lectionary texts are set up, and there's some from the Old Testament, New Testament Psalms, um, oftentimes uh, the epistles and the Gospels. And, uh, and as it, what's beautiful about it is you're, they kind of thematically fit together, but oftentimes there's, uh, there's enough space in there that if there's something that picks up in your heart that you can sort of keep your uh, Pentecostal roots and kind of run down that trail. And uh, <coughs> the particular text that snagged me was from the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. And it's this image, the whole Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, uh, is, is a kind of a gnarly text in that uh, the church hasn't always wanted to keep it in the, in the canon. Because it doesn't ever get explicitly religious, it doesn't really mention God, but but what the church has said, and, and, and even the Jewish scholars said this early on, that there's something in the metaphor of the man and a woman uh, being attracted to each other, connecting to each other, the romance of that, that is a metaphor of how God, Trinity God, is engaging with the human race. It's us as individuals and us as a people. That there's something in that the way a man gets messed with by a woman, the way a woman gets messed with by a man, the way that they want to move toward each other and the risk and the mystery and the scariness and the, the openness and the, the danger and all of that that's wrapped up in that relationship is, is brought to bear somehow in the relationship between God and human beings. And, um, and so this particular text is all poetry. Thanks, Paul. Um, the Song of Songs is all poetry. In this particular text, we're catching this notion of this guy who's got the hots for this girl and he just wants to be with her and is pursuing her and she's thrilled that she's being pursued, that whole kind of thing. And uh, it, it, just, let me just sidebar and say this is not the only analogy, obviously, that is used in trying to describe the nuances of the human divine relationship. You also have God presenting himself as father. You have the Holy Spirit as counselor. You have Jesus talking about uh, being our brother. We, we're, we're called brothers and sisters, and we're children of God. I mean, so there's, you know, a, a bunch of metaphors that are used to capture all the ways in which God interacts with humankind. But this one shouldn't be avoided. Uh, it's a little funny talking about God and us in romantic kinds of terms, sexual kinds of terms, and yet the scripture does that. And so we're going to plunge through a little bit of that awkwardness, feel a little weird about it. But, uh, and yet there's something to be mined from it, I'm hoping. So to, we'll turn to our text. This is out of the song, chapter 2. And listen to the sheer beauty of the pursuit as we begin this. Listen, my lover. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills, my lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall. He's gazing through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. It's this kind of notion of just kind of checking her out, leaning in with interest, a little bit of intrigue, right? 
my lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter's past, the rains are over and gone, flowers are appearing on the earth, the season of singing has come, let's go sing. The cooing of the doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Let's blow this pop stand, right? <laughs> so here's, I want to share basically three kinds of ideas that come out of this text that to me reframe and challenge my faith. And that is that, first of all, is that this notion of pursuit that in this relationship with God, there is a pursuer in this. Um, and then secondly, I want to talk about how the pursuit ends in union. And in that union, it's talking about a kind of intimacy, physical intimacy, and the arc of physical intimacy with a view of fertility and procreation. In other words, there's a result of that, that connection that brings forth a different possibility of life and what that looks like, and how that is sort of inferred in the idea of faith in God and our trust in him. And then lastly, I want to look at the notion of the mystery of all of this, and how that, that there's something in the mystery of how men and women interact, and how love blossoms, and how there's this, you know, flirting, and all of that kind of stuff that's sort of present in that, that how all of that leads somewhere, and how we don't understand how it leads somewhere, how that's all kind of brought together. And then we'll end with coming to the table and how I think that this table sort of expresses a kind of romance that calls us to a faith that's so rich and pure and right. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about pursuit. In our text, this particular, uh, it's saying in verse eight again, it talks about, listen, my lover, look here, he comes leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills my lover is the gazelle or a young stag. Look, for he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. It's this idea of the interested party is God. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I kind of thought that Christianity was something that we kind of become aware of, and then we kind of have to own it, right? The triune God has given us life. The triune God has got this plan of how he was going to re-engage with humankind that had sinned against him, that should be thrown out from him, but somehow he has sent Christ and the triune God has brought this idea of redemption to humanity and now it's like he's come all this way, done all this work and dang it, here, take it and go with it. You better do something with it. So you need to get serious and you need to learn about God and you got to cross your T's and dot your I's and you better just, I mean, if he died for you, at least you can do is live for him, right? That kind of idea. And so in my mind, I saw God oftentimes as the one whom I had to pursue, at least in response to what he has already done. And then there's some truth in that. But, but what, what, somehow in the midst of that, it, I would read texts like uh, the one in Psalm 42, where the psalmist is describing a kind of response he's having about God. And it says, as the deer pants for the streams of water, as the deer pants so thirsty that that the deer is running after water, pants for the streams of water. The psalmist says, so my soul pants for you. And I would read texts like this and others like it that would haunt me because I would say, God, I don't know that I've got that much seek in me. I think I need more seek in me. 
I want to seek you. I want to love you. And, and I knew enough about myself that, that uh, my heart was, as the psalm, uh, the uh, hymn goes, my heart was prone to wander, right? I mean, as long as I was with Christians and I was in Christian services or I was in prayer reading my Bible, I did pretty good. <laughs> my heart seemed to be okay. But the minute I get away from something explicitly spiritual and get out into the context of life and all the pulls that the life and the world has, I would quickly sort of lose my edge or my passion or my, my love for God. And it was almost like, best way to describe it is, you know, if you've ever gone to a matinee in the afternoon and you kind of get in the matinee in the theater, it's dark and, you know, and then when you come out, I mean, you got the squint, right? And you're walking around with the squint. See, I would get in services or in prayer and I'd come out with the squint, you know, oh, that was powerful. God's amazing, man. You know, I love you, Lord. But then the squint would wear off, Right? My eyes would adjust to the surroundings. And so I would feel guilty. And I remember specifically coming to God in prayer and saying, God, please deer me up. You know, make me like the deer that, that pants after you. I don't want to love other things more than you. I want, would you please fix me, touch me, anoint me, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, the, the image in my mind, because I was a kid, was Spider-Man, Peter, Peter Parker. You know, he got bit by the spider Right, you remember that? He just—he's just a normal everyday Joe, everyday Peter, and uh, got bit by the spider, falls out under the power. <laughs> right, and how does he get up? Spider Man, Spider Man does whatever a Spider Man can. Right, so I'm telling you, I would go to the altar, and I wanted God. I wanted God to bite me. <laughs> God, do it, 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 just, just, just do it, just do it. So when I fall under the power, I wake up, godly man, godly man, does whatever a godly man can. You know what I'm saying? You know, like I think, so this is my longing. God, do some magic in me. Okay, so, never happened. And as I was praying about that, I'll never forget, because it was a consternation in my soul, and I'll never forget, I'm, I'm in the midst of a prayer, and it was like in a moment, I went back in time to a memory of when I was eight years old, and it was real. My eyes closed, <laughs> I can't explain to you how real it was. It was, I was there. And I'm walking through this memory, and it was, I could feel the feelings I had as an eight-year-old. And what it was about, it was about a girl named Candy. Candy was my first love. It was puppy love, to be sure, but I was howling, right? And, uh, now, the, the, the unique situation was Candy didn't know that I existed, but I knew she existed, and what I would do is I would sometimes go over by her house, you know, she lived just a few blocks away, and I would just walk up and down the, the sidewalks, just hoping she might come out. Now, I had no idea what I would do if she did. I would probably not say anything, but just keep moving in my awkward eight-year-old way, but... It was always the chance, right, that she might come out. And I remember one particular morning, I had gotten up a little bit early. I thought, I'm going to go over and just, she might come out today. It's Saturday. And it was kind of a cold, ready Wisconsin day. And so I, I, I remember I got my hair perfect. It was back in the 60s when, you know, brill cream was being used. And it would make your hair wet and stick and be perfect. And I remember I combed it perfect, nice little part, little head, perfect. And I remember, I, I can remember this just, I'm telling you. I put my hands on my head and I said, oh, God. Would you make this be, my hair be like this just forever? <laughs> now, to this day, I'm so thankful God does not answer all of our prayers. <laughs> right? 
because then I would be a sign and they wonder. <laughs> I wonder what that's about, right, kind of thing. Looks like your old head. <laughs> anyway, um, so, <laughs> so I, I ended up going, walking through the cold, and, and, and walking up, and there's a big oak tree in front of her house, and I remember setting, I kind of walk up to the tree, and then I kind of peek out by the tree, and I do this, and got behind the tree, and I peek out, from it, and right there, it was like it was frozen, the ache of wanting to see her, the longing of maybe a chance encounter. And in that moment, I heard the Holy Spirit say, as I'm going through that memory, I feel like that about you every day. I cannot tell you how that affected me. Because I thought my relationship with God was about me. Hearing what God has done, and now it's about me holding up the bargain, doing my part. Not realizing that that it's him in constant pursuit of us. Psalms says he knows when we sit down. He knows when we stand up. He knows when we, what we're going to say before we say it. What is it saying? It's saying that God really is into you, <laughs> right? That, that on some level he's chasing, he's peering through the lattice. He's looking at your life, longing to engage with you. When you understand this, it makes prayer a whole different deal. It makes it so much easier because you're not praying to get God's attention. You're actually responding to a God who's trying to get your attention. The reason you come to church, you feel that urge to go to church is not because you just better because it's a good Christian thing to do and if you don't, you'll just feel bad. You ought to be more like, I think he's calling me. I mean, the fact that you even, that you even think of doing spiritual things is evidence that he's working in you. Because the scriptures are clear. Human beings, especially on the fallen side of the spectrum, never think of seeking God. Look at this text. This is in Romans 3. The text says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. This is what we do. This is par for the, for the human race. There is no one who does good, not even one. So why do we seek? What is it? Because he put the seek in us to seek. The only reason we ever think to pray is because he put us in and say, hey, why don't you come talk to me? It's his pursuit that we're hearing, but we interpret it as, a lot of times, as condemnation. When we think we should pray, we don't realize he's actually calling us. We think we just beat ourselves. We should pray, and then we don't because we didn't. We don't pray because we didn't pray. And we live in a condemnation, not understanding. This thing is flipped on its head if you understand. God is in hot pursuit of your life. And he's longing, calling us to pray and calling us to do things where we orient our heart to him because he's seeking us and in pursuit of us. There's a cool text in Romans 3, or excuse me, in, in Revelations 2, 3, Revelations 3, that says, here I am. This is Jesus, the resurrected Christ. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And one scholar was exegeting this text and saying, this, the verb here is not just like a light knock. It's like a pound. Here I am, pounding at the door of your life. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm suggesting to you that's what spiritual disciplines are about. It's opening the door to a pounding Christ. So when we say, good morning, Father, it's because he's there pounding, saying, let me in. Hey! I'll never forget, I was walking in school, junior, well, freshman in high school, freshman in high school, Walking, and I was part of a Bible study that happened every morning. And that particular morning at school, I didn't go. I was preparing for a test. <clears throat> and so I'm in late. I, I hadn't prayed. And I was a person that 
you know, had a kind of a routine. And we got to lunchtime, and uh, I, I was finally on my way to lunch just a little bit after 12. And I remember, I just at that moment realized I hadn't even talked to God all day, and that was unusual for me. And I said, Father, and I kid you not, I heard, that's at like 12.30 or something, I, 12.20, I heard, good morning. Now, here's what I heard when I heard that. I've been waiting to talk to you. And it wasn't like I said, God, you didn't know it was the afternoon? <laughs> Did you see my watch? He knew what time it was. But saying good morning said to me, I've been standing here waiting. I love to talk to you. This kind of notion, this kind of idea that God is in pursuit of us reframes spirituality. It adds romance to faith. Second thing I want you to, back to our song, chapter 2, verse 10, my lover spoke and said to me, arise my darling, my beautiful one, let's get out of here, come with me. See, the winter is past. He's opening up language that's saying, this coming with me is going to result in something that hasn't been happening. A kind of newness, new life, Fertility, springtime, the winter's past, things are going to start coming forth that weren't. Potentiality is going to be realized. He says, see, the winter's past, the rains are over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. That's talking procreation. That's talking the idea of fertility. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. That is explicit poetic reference to fertility and, and to procreation. It's this notion that there's, going to have babies, right? The fig trees form as early fruit. There again, uh, growth. The blossoming vines spread their wings. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. So this is where this gets a little odd because it's really talking about this notion of the pursuit that ends in a kind of physicality. It's, It's the notion of eros, sexuality, that leads to procreation. In a, in a kind of trajectory. It's odd because most of us don't ever think in these kinds of terms when it comes to religion and faith. We, we, it, and in fact, maybe it's because our culture has been so perverted in sexuality that we don't even know the holiness that's associated with. That for God, the, 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 the openness and the vulnerability and the ecstasy and the loss and the giving of oneself completely in a context of, a, of, a, of an intimate uh, sexual relationship within the boundaries of a safe place like marriage that is so holy to God. God claims that bed is undefiled. It's been defiled by our culture in so many ways. And sometimes we let what the culture's done make us push back. But hope, just for a minute, there's something as awkward as it feels, there's something very, very powerful about the imagery of sexuality and procreation within the context of the relationship that we have with God that captures something that there's a fruitfulness that God is calling us to. Paul is the one that actually, it's not only in the Old Testament, but also Paul's the one that actually explicitly uses the term of of sexuality with the context of faith. And he says this is in Ephesians 5. And um, uh, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, which is the foundational relationship of his life, right? He's willing to leave that for what this is about, to be united to his wife. And they too will become one flesh. That's That phrase, they too become one flesh, is an explicit Bible way of saying they're going to have sex. That's what it is, explicit. And then he says, but this is a profound mystery. You don't think I'm talking about sexuality. I'm really not. 
I'm saying that there's something about that mystery. There's something about what happens in that context that's so secret, sacred, holy, private, and, and, and so vulnerable and open, so much so that, 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 that the, song, the Song of Songs actually says that the physical relationship is kind of like a death. It's that vulnerable. It's like you're opening yourself up to another person in a way that no other place that happens, right? See, this, it's not that marriage love is only that. It's just a part of marital love. But it is interesting that marital love is, did I finish reading that text? Did I? Yeah, I did. That said that, that speaks okay. So what, it's not that marital love is only about this. In fact, you know, friendship is a critical part of marriage love, uh, but you're also friends with other people, right? Respect is a part of marital love, but you also respect your mom and dad, right? So you, you, there, there's other, other kinds of aspects of marital love that I think are more important than this physicality, but physicality is really important because a marriage without any physical love is a dead marriage, and somehow you have to learn to fight for it, learn how to adjust as you get older together, to learn how to stay sparky with each other. And there's something in that that speaks of our relationship with God long-term that somehow we have to learn to keep a spark in our hearts, that we learn how to keep in pursuit of God in our hearts. It was, it was Jesus as his resurrected self who was speaking in, in Revelations, and he says, he said, I want you guys, I love it that you're diligent and that you're, you're doctrinally pure and that you resist those people that are in error, but he says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You're not connecting with me anymore. You're not that interested in me anymore. And there's something about this, and, and what I think it is, is that, like nothing else in marriage or in life, this specific sexuality is something that can only happen with an other. That's the way it's designed. It was actually, this might be a shock to you, but sex was never designed to be a solo enterprise. <laughs> it can be, but it's not designed that way, right? It was designed to be with an other. And the otherness of sexuality is precisely what is the point of eros and faith? The fact that we cannot be faithful without the actual presence of God in our midst. That faith is not about us performing for God, you know, and hoping he sees it. It's about us actually being involved with God from beginning to end. That it's from him and through him and to him are all things. Not from me, through me, for God. But it's from him and his engagement with me and through him. Faith, seek, the whole thing starts with him being engaged. It's his otherness in my life, his actual presence in my life. And the vulnerability in that and the openness and the nakedness of that that speaks of what faith really is. It's, it's Moses looking at God and God's talking to Moses face to face. What's up with that, right? So it's God with Moses and God says to Moses, just go ahead and take off. I'll be cool. You know, just keep obeying what I'm telling you to do. And Moses said, no, 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 no. I, we, I don't want to go anywhere unless you go with us. See, this, this notion of eros in faith means that we fight for the other of God being present with us so that we know when we move forward that we're only going to move forward because he's with us. That we're only going to pray, not because we're supposed to pray, but because we're praying, we're opening the door to a knocking Christ and he's right there. So that when we enter into a fasting time, it's like we're kind of going, you know, God, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat lunch today. Or I'm not going to eat this dinner tonight. I'm just going to get really hungry. And as I get really hungry, and I'm going to be thinking about Big Macs and, you know, or whatever you think about. <coughs> Some of you probably healthy. Uh, Kale salad. 
All right, just give me a second. <clears throat> you know, whatever it is that floats your boat, you know, that you're going to delight in and feast in. And you say, God, instead of that, I, I want to delight in you and feast in you. It, it's like a crazy thing. It's, that's eros. Is there any eros in your faith? We are crazy enough to give things up for God and love and chase him back because you know he's chasing you. And then the third thing that I, I think in this is, is back to the song is the notion of mystery. My lover spoke and said to me, arise my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. This notion of God saying to us, come with me. Not knowing where he's going, right? He's making say, come on, let's go, let's go. Where are we going? We're going. Where? Just come on. <laughs> I love that. It's like when God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to go there. And he said, well, where? He said, a place called there. <laughs> Leave everything. Come with me to the place called there. There's something so amazingly romantic about the fact you don't know where you're going. There's Gail. 15-year anniversary, right? And, and I, talk, I said to her, honey, I'm going to take you somewhere. Where? I'm not going to tell you. She kind of smiles, see, because there's something about not knowing and trusting in the one, right? And so I set it up. And so I said, uh, we're going to leave Tuesday night. She said, what about the kids? I said, man, I got that taken care of. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> Flowers might have worked in your 20s. But romantic stuff, help her take care of the kids, man. Take the kids to the dentist. That's foreplay. Shazam. <laughs> so I got the kids taken care of, had the whole thing planned, so she got in the car, and I said, what do I pack? I said, just pack some stuff. Do I need? She started asking me questions to try to figure out where we're going, so I just... Told her, yeah, bring that, bring that. So, ah, she's confused. So we got in the car and drove about two hours, parked, got in the hotel, and she said, okay, what do we do? I said, honey, you got to get up at about seven. I said, we'll get you up. I said, it'll be, it'll be cool, just relax, enjoy. So she did, leaned into that. So got up in the morning, drove about a mile to the train station, and here comes this train. It was a snowy uh, morning in Wisconsin, and it was an Amway track, Amtrak train, and Amway, Amtrak. <laughs> Let me tell you why you're really here. <laughs> I'm trying to find a way to fund the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, got on this Amtrak train, and it was like a Dr. Zhivago, man. We were going through, there was snow, fresh snow on the trees. We were going through there, and just holding her hand, and we are just scooting along. Went to Chicago, got out, got a cab, went to this hotel, got to the hotel. It was a little boutique, beautiful hotel. I just paid this whole trip off a couple weeks ago, but anyway. <laughs> got into the hotel, and there was 15 roses sitting there. Surprise, surprise. Somebody had thought of that, right? And then for the next three days, she didn't even, she stopped asking me what we were doing. Because every time she'd say something, I said, oh, it's cool. Get ready. You got to be ready at five. Right? And I took her to concerts and we did these fun things and ate up on these cool restaurants and we did this whole thing planned. And she just loved it. She leaned into the mystery of it. Now, I guarantee you, I would have not appreciated if she'd have gone, well, where are we going? Who's going to be there? When are we going to get there? What are we doing now? 
you know, what's going to happen next? How much money is that going to cost? <laughs> just because she wants to know, I just need to know. I just need to know. I need to know. I mean, I think that our relationship should be open, and I should know. I'd go, boom. Not really. <laughs> I wouldn't have married that one. <laughs> but there is something about following a God who doesn't explain himself. Where you don't always have to say, well, what is your will? And what do you want me to do? And how long will this really change? And how come this happened? Shut up! Lean into him and say, I don't get it. It seems a little scary, a little cold. This is kind of what, but I am going to lean into you and trust you. There's something beautiful. That's the mystery of faith. I love the first time the Bible says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. You know where it was? It's with a guy named Habakkuk who's freaking out because God's not doing it right. God's allowing something to happen to Israel that you're not, no, 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 don't do it. You're not supposed to do that. And God just simply tells Habakkuk, the just person lives by his faith. And so Habakkuk leans into the romance of that mystery. And at the end of his book, he writes this. <coughs> he says, though the fig tree doesn't bud. I mean, I'm freaking out a little, but it's not budding. No grapes on the vines. No olive crops failing. The fields aren't producing anything. There's no sheep in the pen. There's supposed to be sheep. There's no sheep in the pen. There's no cattle in the stalls. There's no certitude. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, the pursuing God. I will be joyful in this good God who is my Savior, the sovereign Lord. He's my strength. I'm going to make it. No matter. I can do all things. I can do all things. I don't even have to know what it is. I can do all things through him. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to go in the crazy high places that everybody's freaked out about going, I can go right there. The romance of faith. There's something powerful about this idea. So I think all of this kind of comes to closure right here at the table because I think there's something profoundly romantic about this. I think it's romantic because through this bread, he's peering at you. Through this cup, he's seeing you through the lattice. And he's longing for you to come. He said, do this. He said, do this, church. Do this in my remembrance. Do this so I can come into your midst in some way that's unusual. Not only is he here that way, but somehow this bread and this cup is seed. It's fruitful. It makes us pregnant with something more. Life and health and strength and hope. It's here, union with God in the fact that we allow, we partake of him and he partakes of us and there's something at the end of that. And then not only that, there's mystery. What's going on here? We don't know. I mean, I used to think I knew. But we know it's simple bread and simple cup. And if we put it on the magnifying glass, it would be thus. But when we pray as a community and we bring this bread and this cup, which is from creation and messed with by the work of human hands, and we bring it as an offering and a thanks to God, that something happens to us so that it becomes more than bread and cup. What exactly? Don't know. But I do know this. If we will come to the table, it can reinvigorate our romance. He's here. He's wanting to connect with us. Let's go. Amen? Let's stand. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.